Sorry, those pesky neighbors taking a walk. Just can't have that. Can you still, yeah, I got this. Can you hear them? Yeah, yeah. I got the same thing here. It's I got a hound dog, so I, I know the deal. All right, let me see if I can get them to chill out. I am joined today on Between the Levees by Lieutenant Tim Veach, who I met in Morgan City when I took over uh, canal dispatch responsibilities back in early 2019. Lieutenant Veach, thank you very much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Tim. Well, as I know you've seen most all these episodes, you know how this goes. Please tell me, sir, where were you born? I was born in Jeffersonville, Indiana. How was life growing up uh, up there? Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, you get all four seasons. Uh, I grew up along the Ohio River uh, back when Jeff Boat was open, and uh, they were making lots of barges and tugs out of there. At one point, it was the nation's largest inland tug builder. And uh, a lot of people I went to school with worked there until they shut down. And uh, so the river's always been a way of life for me. We owned property on the river growing up and I learned how to swim in the Ohio River. I don't tell a lot of people that, but uh, that's where I learned how to swim. And uh, my family's worked on the rivers for many years. I know, of course, of your father. Who else in the family was on the river? Uh, my wife's father and her grandpa both worked on the river. And... Uh, one of them worked for Ingram. Uh, her her grandpa worked for Ingram. And then uh, another one worked, uh, I believe it was Ohio Valley Towing uh, out of the, on the Tennessee River, I think is what he ran for them back in the 60s and 70s. Both of them in the wheelhouse? Uh, yes, sir. Well, tell me about your father's career. Uh, my dad uh, started out uh, as a cook for ACBL and... Uh, he went out, uh, he liked cooking and, and did a good job for them. And uh, he wanted to do more and started working as a deckhand for ACBL and worked his way up into the pilot house. And uh, unfortunately, in 1989, uh, he passed away. Uh, they were pulled in a lock queue and they started painting the superstructure of uh, the tugboat, the, the Richard C. Young ACBL boat outside of St. Louis. And uh, was outside painting the superstructure and had a heart attack and uh, passed away. Very sorry to hear that. So that was just that sudden? Uh, yes. Hmm. So it was a really hot day, over 100 degrees, and uh, just had a big heart attack and passed away. Mm, 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 mm. Um, well, what was life growing up with with a dad that was, or what was his schedule? Uh, he was 30 on, 30 off. Okay. So and that I was uh, a neat but weird schedule. So uh, it seemed like, and I'm sure all tollbutters can appreciate this, but uh, those 30 days out were never really 30 days out. They were like 35, 36. And then the, the time home always seemed short because he was always getting called back. How long had he been, uh, been on the river? Uh, he had worked for ACBL for seven years. Okay. And how old would, would you have been in 89? I would have been eight years old. What was life after that, or I guess right when it happened, and then as you grew up, uh, I guess what steers your your professional development? Well, uh, you grow up fast. Uh, I was uh, me and my little sister at the house of my mother, and uh, I took on a lot of responsibility around the house and kind of set me up for my future in the military. Uh, after high school, I joined the Marine Corps for four years. And I was 
a military police officer. I worked at the Camp Pendleton Base Brig as a prison guard for four years in the Marine Corps out in California. And uh, I got home and I've always loved being out on the water. Like I said, I grew up on the Ohio River. And I got home and I was doing my college thing and I was working for a private security company in Jeffersonville at the Department of Commerce building. And uh, I was down on the water one day at a restaurant there in Jeffersonville with my cousin. And these guys rode up on this little orange boat at one of the restaurants. And I said, hey, what do you guys do? He said, we're in the Coast Guard. And I said, what is that all about? I'd never heard of it and uh, grew up on the river my whole life. And uh, they said, we drive that little boat around and check to make sure people have the right safety gear and get people for boating under the influence. And I was like, well, I want to do that. So I went to the recruiter and uh, I said, that's what I want to do. And 16 years later, my last year in the Coast Guard, I'm finally back home in Louisville, Kentucky, stationed at Sector Ohio Valley. And uh, I've still never driven a little orange boat around and uh, made sure people had the right safety gear, especially on the rivers. I've been a, a big, we call them big white boat sailors. Um, I've been stationed in the Bering Sea on a 378-foot cutter doing uh, illegal fishing, uh, maritime boundary line excursions with China and other countries, Russia. I've also been the combat systems officer aboard the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Hamilton out of Charleston, South Carolina. And on that boat, I led the tactical law enforcement teams uh, in the apprehension of over $1.9 billion worth of cocaine in three different uh, patrols in the Eastern Pacific. There you have it. Well, let's back up a little bit. Um, tell me about growing up. Were you going to anything in school? I know you said you went to college. Uh, how did your, your academic career develop? Um, I was an average student in high school, and uh, I went to freshman orientation for Indiana University, and it was weird. It was almost like the military because the guy doing the orientation said, look to the left, look to the right. Uh, those people probably aren't graduating, and maybe you will. And I said, maybe I'm not ready for college. So that's when I joined the Marine Corps. And after you do the Marine Corps for four years, you kind of got a direction of where you want your life to go. If you don't, then there's something wrong with you. So I got out and uh, I pursued a uh, business management degree at Indiana Wesleyan University out of Marion, Indiana. And uh, like I said, I, I met those Coast Guard guys three years later as I was nearing the end of my bachelor's degree. And uh, I went and enlisted in the Coast Guard uh, as a petty officer. And I started out actually as a cook, just like my dad for ACBL aboard one of our small construction tenders that works buoys. Uh, this one was the uh, Coast Guard Cutter Anvil out of Charleston, South Carolina. So we ran uh, sticks from Myrtle Beach down to Savannah, Georgia. Um, day boards, pulling wreck buoys, uh, some built some uh some towers in the charleston harbor and that was pretty neat so i got a, a taste for the aton life on that tour and from there i got picked up to go to officer candidate school in new london connecticut uh where then after that i went to the bering sea up in kodiak alaska before we get too far into that tell me uh, about your marine corps experience from enlisting to boot camp to four years of service uh, the, the Marine Corps was interesting, uh, and I see a, a lot of people that have joined after me um, say that they joined the military because of 
and I was actually in the Marine Corps during 9-11. And uh, I think at first I joined the Marine Corps. I, I wanted to serve my country. My grandpa was in the Army. My other grandpa was in the Army. I had two brothers in the National Guard. Uh, so my family's always served. However, you know, you, you don't think about war when you join up during peacetime. And then 9-11 happens. We just got back from a platoon run in the morning. Marines work out every day. That's like all you get paid to do, basically. <laughs> so we just got back and we're shining our boots and shaving and getting ready to go in at work. And uh, I'm sitting there watching the TV. We always watch the news in the morning. And I saw the first plane, the aftermath. And as we're sitting there, I'm yelling at my buddy and I'm saying, hey, Justin, come here, come here. Look at this, man. A plane just hit the tower. And right as he came out, the second plane hit the second tower. And we were like, not 30 minutes later, our sergeant's banging on the doors saying, nobody can leave base. Nobody can come in. Uh, we need you all to go to the gates and stand extra gate watch to make sure that everything's secure. So it was like, it's kind of mind boggling. And um, that was a one of my favorite memories of being in the Marines. Uh, just because you train and train and train. And then knowing that America has the right resources and tools to, to go take care of whatever our nation's problems are being terrorists this time, I knew that, uh, I was in the right service to take care of everyone's issues. Um, not six months later, uh, George Bush came to our base at Camp Pendleton and uh, saw off the uh, 1st Marine Division and uh, as they were getting ready to deploy uh, for the invasion. So um, that was pretty neat, too. And what was your MOS in the Marine Corps? I was a 5831. So military police slash brig guard so i was in charge of uh once you know camp pendleton's got a hundred and thousand people aboard that base every day it's just like a small city and uh marines do lots of stupid stuff and navy people there too and uh we'd have people in there for murder rape uh assault uh and then we'd have people in there for little things like missing two days of work without showing up uh, UA, or we'd have somebody underage drinking, um, or somebody that tried drugs. So we'd have people, it was a 10 year facility and we can hold them up for 10 years while they await all their appeals process. And then after those 10 years, they transferred to Fort Leavenworth. And you did that your whole four year term? Uh, yes, I did. Yep. So oh, I, I did various positions inside the brig. I was the NCO in charge of indoctrination. So when people, being in Marine Corps jail versus civilian jail are two different things. Uh, in the Marine Corps brig, uh, you got a yellow line in all the hallways and you got to stay on the yellow line and you're still saying yes, sir. No, sir. You're still getting inspections. You still got to maintain a haircut. Um, it's like a mini boot camp. So it's not a lot of fun. Well, tell me about your, uh, your boot camp experience and enlisting in the Marine Corps. How, how did all that go for you? Uh, you know, I, my, I graduated high school and I told you I went to that college orientation thing. So I knew that wasn't going to be it for me at that time. And the day after graduation, my mom said, uh, you need to pay me, start paying me this much rent. You still need to be at home at 10 o'clock at night. And the next day I went and joined the Marine Corps. And uh, I said, I don't want to do that. 
and uh, so I, the first day at boot camp, when they started yelling at me after I got off the bus, uh, in the back of my head, I was like, man, that 50 bucks my mom wanted a month is not a lot of money. So uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I wouldn't be where I am today without the Marine Corps, but there was no way that this guy was doing 20 years of that. And did you say your father and grandfather were in the military? Uh, both my grandparents. Uh, my They were both in World War II. Uh, my grandpa, Nolan, was in an island called New Caledonia. And he was a military policeman that rode a Harley around the island. Uh, they held uh, prisoners of war there. So he would uh, ride his Harley around the island just checking for to make sure everything was on the up and up. And then my other grandpa... My grandpa Veach was in the Battle of the Bulge, and um, I got some neat memorabilia from him. I got a German Luger and all kinds of little war trophies that he brought back home. But uh, he's got an interesting story. He was a Hollywood cameraman, actually out in Hollywood, California. And uh, so when he enlisted, uh, he was a uh, he worked. He was in the army. He was a corporal, but he was a wartime cameraman. So. You know, with, uh, I don't know, like an army reporter, like capturing stuff on the front lines and stuff. But during the Battle of the Bulge, he was told to put down his camera and here's your rifle because everybody needed to fight. Right. So that's pretty cool. He actually transmitted a um, a letter from the headquarters to the front lines. He carried it out and delivered it to all the frontline commanders. It was from General Patton to the General Middleton that had held uh, Bastogne during the Battle of the Bulge and told him it was a uh, what a stroke of genius that he held this for these many days and waited until relief because it turned the tide of the war. So I got a copy of that letter. It's pretty neat. So jumping back to where I cut you off last time, I think you said you're in the uh, well. Let me, let me. Was there a, a Coast Guard station before the Bering Sea, or was that your first assignment? Yeah, the first assignment was Charleston, South Carolina, as an enlisted guy. I actually came in the Coast Guard. Uh, I went to the recruiter, and I said, hey, I want to join. And I told him I'm prior service Marine. And he said, oh, I don't know, man. We don't like to take Marines. And he, I don't know if he was just joking or what, but I said, I really want to join. And um, so uh, he said, uh, I'll think about it. He And I came back the next week, and I said, I really want to do this, man. He said, well, go join the Navy Reserves as a bosun's mate. And learn about a seagoing service. And I was like, the Marines are a seagoing service. And uh, so I, I did. I went and joined the Navy Reserves for two and a half years in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, I made torpedo covers and rack curtains for ships. And uh, not the funnest time of the world. And uh, it allowed me to finish my college degree. But I came back to the same recruiter two and a half years later and said, hey, man, I've been doing this Navy thing, like you said, but I really want to join the Coast Guard. And he's like, you really did that? And I was like, yeah, I sure did. And um, he's like, well, I guess I got to let you in now, but I can only give you these three jobs. And he said, you want to be a gunner's mate? And I asked him, I said, do everybody clean their own guns? And he said, no, you clean everybody's guns. In the Marine Corps, you clean your own guns. So um, I said, I, I don't want to do that. And then he said, I could be an OS, like a radio person. And I was like, well, what do they do? He said, they're in the belly of the ship. It's really cold in there and dark and I said, I don't, I got to see some sunlight. And then he said, uh, what about being a cook? And, uh, you know, my dad started out on the boats as a cook and I've always liked to cook. And he said, if you do that job, they're even giving $25,000 enlistment bonuses right now. And 
all of a sudden I had this flash of Steven Seagal and under siege cookie come in my head. And I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be a tactical cook. And, uh, so that's what I did for two and a half years. And I, uh, applied to OCS and got in the first time. So, and became an officer. Tell me about OCS. Uh, Coast Guard OCS was tough. It was harder than Coast Guard boot camp. Marine Corps boot camp was way harder than both of them. Um, Coast Guard OCS, uh, the standard of people that come in there are really high grade people. Uh, the instructors are top notch and, uh, I think they turn out a really good product. What was, uh, a day in the life at OCS? Uh, a lot of reading, um, me being a cook, I was kind of behind the eight ball. Uh, even though I'd been on the little buoy boat uh, in Charleston, but, uh, a lot of deck watch officer tests, rules of the roads tests, which all benefited me because that's what I wanted to do is drive boats. Um, but uh, a lot of studying, a lot of cracking books, a lot of getting yelled at, rooms inspections, uniform inspections, that type stuff. Uh, not a lot of PT. We went in the winter time. I got there right after the holidays in early January. And up in New London, Connecticut, uh, I think there was snow and ice on ground the first three months and those first three months are the ones they really like hammer home the physical fitness and we could never go outside because there's always ice and snow outside so um we were very limited in uh getting beatings as they call them so you finish ocs and your first posting is in the bering sea is that correct uh kodiak alaska and uh i put down every ship tim that the coast guard had but no boats in kodiak alaska were on my list none so they call me an hour before the they give out assignments on stage and they say, hey, Tim, uh, come here. We got to talk to you. And they're like, uh, hey, great news. We got you a boat. And I'm like, awesome. Uh, you're going to have to bring some flannel line blue jeans and you're going to have to get some extra tufts and you'll fit right in in Kodiak, Alaska. And I looked at them with this thousand yard stare. Uh, I just had a brand new baby at the, at the time. Uh, she was only four months old. And uh, I was like, you got to be kidding me. And they're like, that's all we got for you, man. Kodiak, Alaska, or you're not getting underway. And, you know, I'd, I've always had a calling, a yearning to go to sea. And uh, I really wanted to do it. And uh, I'm thankful for it because never in a million years would you have told me I've gotten to see the things I've been able to see on a Coast Guard ship. And uh, people don't understand that the Coast Guard goes everywhere in the world. Uh, not as much as the Navy, but we go everywhere and we do all kinds of good missions and, and missions that uh, really support the government and industry as a whole. The prosperity of a lot of Americans, whether it's fishermen, uh, whether it's moving barges on the inland river system, uh, coastal buoys for, to guide in freighters, uh, safeguarding our facilities and our cargo storage areas on the east west coast the gulf of mexico we do a lot of stuff that's worthwhile and i feel like we get the taxpayer out of all the branches of the military the best bang for their buck stuff that they can see every day tell me about arriving in alaska for the first time uh well my we stayed on base and uh the housing there is from the 50s and uh, it's all steam heated it's a big steam plant so it's one of these heater systems either it's off and you freeze or it's on and you burn up so to compensate that you crack every window in the house to kind of get this equilibrium of heat 
And I'll never forget the first day there, my neighbor introduced himself and uh, we're out there talking, drinking some beers. And uh, my wife came outside and she said, it's time to come in. And it was still daylight, you know, because it's daylight there all day long. <laughs> and I said, what time is it? And she goes, it's 1.30 in the morning. I'd posted up on that fence talking to him for four and a half hours, lost track of time because it didn't get dark. And uh, that was neat. And then uh, our house was right next to the airstrip. So out our back window, you could see the C-130s and the helicopters taxiing. And you'd hear them taking off at all hours of the night for search and rescue missions. And I'm a big, I used to be a big runner. I, I wish I was still a big runner, but uh, I'd have to take a can of bear spray with me on runs there. So that was interesting. There's more grizzly bears in Kodiak, Alaska than there is people. No kidding. Well, yeah. What was, your, uh, what was your, your, what were you doing for the Coast Guard up there? I was the uh, gunnery officer and the training officer aboard the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Monroe. Uh, that was one of our 378s that have since been decommissioned. Uh, and we did uh, Bering Sea fishery patrols where we guarded or, or where we boarded uh Mostly longliner and uh, halibut fishing boats. Don't I didn't mess around too much with the crab boats. Uh, that's more of a seasonal thing. Um, I did that, and then we also did a an international patrol in the Sea of Japan and the South China Sea. Uh, we interdicted a Chinese fishing boat. I don't know if you could do this nowadays, but we interdicted a Chinese fishing boat that was catching everything that it could. It had a mile long gill net thrown out. It was catching whales, sharks, everything. And this is why our fishery system up there is the world's largest, most vital marine biomass in the world because we regulate it. There's fishing agents up there, the Coast Guard, making sure that fishermen catch and we sustain the fishery for future generations the chinese and russians have overfished their fishing grounds so much that they have to resort to throwing out a mile long gill net and just catch everything so we seized this vessel and i guess i'd been an officer for six months and i got my first command of a, a ship so uh, right as we got on this boat we were detaining them waiting for the state department telling us that we could seize the vessel uh class three typhoon was coming in and i was on this 60 foot trawler with a crew that didn't speak in english we had a translator and uh this typhoon was coming in all of a sudden we were beset in 20 30 foot seas uh this boat had no life raft all we had was our little inflatable life jackets uh it was really scary time uh, I know the the master come up in the pilot house and told the translator uh, in Japanese. And I said, I don't need a translation for that. He said, we're all going to F and die. And uh, this boat was so, it wouldn't pass up chapter M. Uh, <laughs> this boat had an oiler. There was a position on there for an oiler. It had the valve covers were taken off. And every 30 minutes, he had to go squirt oil in the valves. And so I rode out a class three typhoon on a 60 foot Chinese fishing trawler uh, for three days thinking I was going to die. And <laughs> I look back on all that now and I'm just like, man, 
that's one of the things I just I can't believe I did. So that was pretty cool. How many men had boarded with you? Four. Okay. So it was I was the uh, assistant boarding officer, a boarding officer, two other petty officers, and then the translator. So out there bobbing around for three days, you said. Then, then what on that story? Uh, we ended up seizing the boat. The State Department had talked, and we ended up seizing the boat, and uh, we took it halfway back to Dutch Harbor, Alaska. Another boat came and relieved us, and uh, they ended up taking it into Dutch Harbor. That's the big fishing communities town in the Aleutian chain and it's set there for six months uh they were trying to give it to some down on their luck fishermen raffle it off or something but uh, by the time it got back it was infested with rats and um six months later they ended up the city of dutch harbor just wanted it gone so they took it out and used it as target practice and made an artificial reef okay and what about the crew that was on board uh i don't know whatever happened to them i know that uh they were probably charged in a federal district court for illegal fishing poaching uh they had broken all kinds of international maritime law uh fanning sharks is illegal catching whales is illegal um and the gill net that they're using uh one centimeter in between that is is illegal so there was all kind of international law that they had broken i'm sure that they ended up doing some time whether that was in the u.s or they're sent back to their country to do time any other good stories from your time up there in alaska yeah we uh i got to go to adak and Attu, alaska those are uh, two other Aleutian chains and both of those islands uh were japanese held during world war ii uh, which is really cool. You get to see the old pillboxes and the bunkers. And Attu is an uninhibited island. Nobody lives there anymore. We used to have a small Coast Guard radio station there during the Cold War times, Loran. And uh, nobody's there anymore. And that's got the best salmon run that I've ever fished in my whole life because nobody fishes it. it you, you wait out there, and it's like you just pick them up with your hands. You didn't even need a rod and reel. And... uh that was some of the best uh, salmon eating that I've ever done in my life. Uh, we used to stop on the way back from patrol at this place called Albatross Banks. And the back of, you know, Coast Guard big white boats, are they're white. And the back of our fantail area of our boat uh, would be blood-soaked red from all the halibut we were slaying. And we had a system. We had the freeze dryer and the vacuum sealer, and we'd have the cooks out there filleting them. And everybody at your house, you'd have a deep freeze. And uh, I probably had 40 pounds of halibut in my deep freeze at the house after every patrol. And you you don't realize the freshness of the seafood, the crab, the halibut, the salmon, the trout, that you get up there and you're eating it like the same day. And uh, when you come back down here to the States and you see the fish, it's like it, it just doesn't compare. So that's about all that happened in Alaska. Um, I had a really good tour out there. I learned a lot of stuff. Um, my bosses that I had, the captain and then my department head, were some of the hardest bosses I've ever had. But they kind of set me up for the rest of my career. You know, you sometimes you get those bosses in your life and you're like, man, I can't wait to get out of here. This guy's always in my stuff. And I wasn't real polished. I was a Marine. I was a cook in the Coast Guard. And uh, I had a lot of catching up to do. And they held me to a higher standard. And I would say the rest of my career, 
every job I've had has been easier because that first tour was hard. From that job, I went on to Portsmouth, Virginia for four years. Uh, I spent two years as the Aton operations manager. So I was managed three 175 buoy tenders, three construction tenders, and three Weidels. That's our little ice-breaking tugs up in Baltimore, the Chesapeake Bay, and Delaware Bay. And um, after that, I did two years as the 5th District Admiral's aide and traveled all through the Mid-Atlantic with him. I uh, got to do some cool stuff with him. Um, probably my best thing in that job was the 200th anniversary of the uh, Star Spangled Banner riding. Uh, so that was really cool at Fort McHenry in Baltimore. Um, we were watching this huge fireworks show, and I was on the small boat. The, the vice president and members of cabinet, speaker of the house, were all at Fort McHenry watching this fireworks show. And all of a sudden, the secretary of the Navy came out and said he had to be somewhere. And his car was backed up, and he couldn't get out. And he asked if he could get on the small boat that the Coast Guard had that we had brought over the admirals to attend this event. And I said, sure. And um, we were start. He said, I need to go over to that hotel over there. And about halfway to the hotel, he said, just stop right here. I just wanted to see the fireworks from a better point of view. So that was pretty cool. He gave us his coin for taking him out on the water and letting him drive the boat and watch the fireworks. So that was neat. And what came after uh, that duty station? Uh, that's when I went to the department head on the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Hamilton at uh, Charleston, South Carolina as the combat systems officer. Tell me everything and, you can about that posting. Uh, that was a pretty interesting job. I worked for uh, my captain went on to make Admiral after that tour, he was the kind of guy that if you gave 150% for him, he would fall on a sword or do whatever he could for you. And uh, we, he wrote us hard. We worked harder every day, but he was the kind of guy, he would write you that award. He'd put you in for that good recommendation. He would help you get your dream job. Um, he just demanded a lot out of you. Uh, so I got there right as the boat had come to life. It was a brand new ship. Uh, they hadn't been on any official patrols yet. And on our first patrol down in the Eastern Pacific, uh, that's on the other side of the Panama Canal, uh, we ended up busting 13 uh, go-fast boats. And at the time, and to my awareness, that's still a record for an individual ship. Um, we had enough cocaine inside our boat from all those drug busts to fill up a 5,000 square foot house. No kidding. Is a lot of drugs. Yeah. So uh, that mission's pretty cool. The first patrol that you do when you go and you bust these drug runners, uh, a lot of adrenaline, you're just go, 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 chase them, chase them, get them. But after that, the they're one and all the same. Um, a lot of you learn after you talk to a lot of the Intel people that the guys that were busting, they're not the cartels. They're not the, the drug runners per se. They're it's forced labor. The cartel will go into a fishing village. They'll hold some family ransom or kidnap some people. And they'll tell the dad and a son, or I had two 15 year old brothers that were told, take this boat, follow this compass in this direction to Mexico and 
call when you can see land and we'll send somebody out to get you. And you start realizing that, you know, these aren't the real criminals. These are just mules. And uh, I oftentimes think like most people in America, I think everybody in, in America has got a family member that does meth or heroin or pills or something like that. I, I hope there are families that don't, but unfortunately I do. My, my nephew just passed away last year of an overdose due to fentanyl. And I think of all the family members in our country and I don't know, I don't have any friends. I don't know anybody that has the money to do the cocaine that we were capturing. Um, and I think while it's a noble thing that the Coast Guard does, um, I wish we could do more at home to keep the drugs out of our communities that are killing people. Uh, to my understanding, cocaine's a rich person drug. And um, it makes you feel good. But when you are affected in your home and in your family, the way I've been the last couple of years with fentanyl and meth and pills and all that stuff, uh, it's kind of sobering and I just have a different worldview now of, of that. I, I don't regret doing it and it's good that we take some drugs off the street, but I think uh, somebody told me if Warren Buffett was a cartel leader and he knew the Coast Guard was busting one in every four boats that he sent, Warren Buffett would send eight boats and uh, that's what the cartel does. So we capture a small fragment of what's sending and, you know, and some of these boats, I'm sure we're being baited. Go get these easy two over here while six slip by the other direction. Because if you pull up the Eastern Pacific on a map, that's a large body of water. And they're running from Ecuador or Guatemala up to Mexico. And we can't be everywhere. There's usually one or two boats in theater and then you got a couple of maritime patrol aircraft flying over thousands of miles of ocean looking for a 20 foot boat. Um, that's just my take. It was a very rewarding career in the sense that we accomplished a lot. Um, I had a really good crew that worked for me. I was in charge of about 30 people and uh, we, uh, we organically trained our boarding team members. Usually a lot of these boats will have to solicit, from outside units or tactical law enforcement teams because not everybody can train the level of people to a certain level that they need, but we were able to do that organically. So a lot of those drug busts were made by people that I trained and worked for me. And that's rewarding. I've had uh, four officers that worked for me on that boat. And three of the four have gone on to command their own patrol boats. Well, good to go. What happened uh, next in your career? Uh, uh, that's when I, I had a major life change. Uh, I went through a divorce. Um, these boats that I was on are gone four and five months at a time. Again, not like the Navy, but uh, it's a long time. And um, my ex-wife just got tired of it. And uh, she didn't want to do that anymore. And I uh, got a divorce and it was about six months later. I met my new wife, not that I got married instantly, but I'd met somebody new and I'd, I had made the conscious decision that I didn't want to be on a boat anymore, at least doing that kind of stuff gone away. And my kids were getting older and my new wife wanted to have a baby. So I wanted to be home more. And uh, 
the detailer, they don't like that when you change careers. I was a cutterman, and then I was looking to become a prevention officer. And they don't like it when a senior lieutenant uh, that they've groomed to do a certain job changes jobs mid-career. So that's what led me down to Morgan City, Louisiana as the vessel traffic service director there at Berwick Bay. And uh, to tell you the truth, Tim, that was my best tour in the entire 20 years of my Coast Guard Marine Corps career. And I certainly want to get into it. But prior to that, you said kids. I heard about the four-month-old when you went to Alaska. How many children did you have with your first wife? I had two with her. Okay. Yeah. And now I got five. So, and I'm done. There's no more. No more kids. Five is plenty, I think. Uh, Yeah. How old are they all? I got a 15-year-old boy, a 13-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old son, a four-year-old daughter, and a six-month-old daughter. No kidding. What is it? Is there any uh, suggestion in, in the oldest couple that they might pursue the military? Um, my son wants to get into the law enforcement, but he wants to be a conservation officer. Okay, he's into hunting and agriculture and that type of stuff, and um i think that's where his heart wants to be he loves being outdoors in the woods and stuff and then my daughter has aspirations of being an artist she's a really good artist and uh, she wants to go to art school Um, my middle son um i think he's maybe the one that might go in the coast guard but uh, and then the little two are just so little they don't know what they want to do right I wouldn't expect the six-month-old know what uh, he or she wants to do in 20 years. But nonetheless, um, so back to where we met, of course, in Morgan City. I'm not sure how long you had been posted there when uh, when I took yeah. over the canal. So I was, I was there was, from March of, March of 2019 is when I took over. I was there from 17 to 20. Okay. Well, and of course, I saw the facilities and well, the old and new facilities. Uh, yeah, the the old place. Oh man, what a place! Yeah, I was glad to get out of there. Tell me about that that posting. You said it was the the best thing you've done. What was? I tell you what. The, the, me and my wife still talk about it today. She's from Mississippi, but uh, those people down there on the bayou, um, they give you the shirt off their back. They're some of the best salt of the earth, lovingest people that I've ever met in my life. I mean, just great people. And uh, I tease all the time. My CO down there was uh, Commander Mattern, and she's now the Sector Oil Valley Captain of the Port here in Louisville now. And I tease her all the time, and I said, you could go down there and be mayor in Morgan City. They loved you so much. And uh, she jokes, and she said, you're not far from the truth. But uh, just good people. Um, And then the food is just amazing i think i gained 20 pounds down there everything fried i remember I, we lived over on bayou black on the water in homa and uh, i'll tell you two stories uh, the first day after i woke up the first night we stayed in this three-story townhouse uh, i look out in the little uh, bay where all the boats are moored and i seen the sun come up and i was like oh this is beautiful this is great i had a really nice boat and i'm excited to get out in the water and then i look down there and my wife's like, what are all those little shiny things in the water? And there were alligator eyes. And I was like, come home. Yeah. I had the wrong kind of boat. I had a, a, a wakeboarding boat. 
and uh, I think I only splashed it three or four times the whole time we were down there. And uh, so that was one story. And the second story is uh, one day I hooked into a gar, a big old alligator gar. It had to been three or four feet long. And I was using steel braided uh, line. And uh, I told my, I yelled up at the house, told my wife, said, bring my snips down. I need to cut this line because I wasn't messing with this gar. And I had this French Cajun guy that worked on a oil rig offshore. You know, half the people down there work offshore. And uh, he said, oh, no, hold on, Tim. And uh, he tells his wife to bring him his club. And I pull this gar up on the bank, and it's flipping around. Big old alligator gar. He comes over and starts beating the snot out of it and says, ooh, we're going to make some gar balls. And his dude had an industrial grade fryer on his back porch. <laughs> and uh, he yells up his wife. He says, get that Holy Trinity going, girl. And uh, he starts cutting up his green peppers, onions, and celery and gets the bread out. He's like, oh, you're going to love these garballs. And uh, I'm telling you, Tim, I ate some stuff down there that was good. That wasn't one of them. <laughs> and... Uh, one day he had put out traps on the back porch and he called a Nutra rat and uh, he made Nutra, Nutra, uh, like boudin balls. And he, he tried to get me to eat one of that West Texas crane. He went crane hunting one time. I wasn't a fan of that. Just everything, man. It was just like, you can't make this stuff up, but uh, that was a good tour. That was, that's by far my favorite tour. And then, Getting to work with the tugboaters for the first time in my life, uh, my dad being a tugboater and uh, interacting and being a facilitator of safe commerce and trying to keep ports open after the hurricanes that we had down there, trying to expedite getting stuff open um, as fast as possible, knowing that, you know, time is money and it's, it's just not the companies making money, but it's the product coming to market that helps reduce costs on taxpayers and citizens, you know, I think a lot of times that, um, the general public looks at tugboat companies like, Oh, they're losing money or they don't understand. A lot of times these are fixed prices. So, you know, it's based on a contract at a fixed price and I'm sure there's time delays or whatever in there, but it's really benefits you for that boat getting there faster to keep the goods and services flowing that's our economic lifeline of our country, you know, and I don't think people quite understand how much commerce is moved on our inland river system. Uh, a lot of other countries in the world are jealous that we have the naturally deep channels that we have on Ohio, Mississippi, Missouri rivers, Tennessee, Cumberland. They, other countries don't have that luxury as, as we do. And, uh, it just so happens it's right in the heartland of our country, the breadbasket of our country. So whether it's corn coming from the fields of Nebraska or Kansas, or it's coal coming from Kentucky, it's all getting funneled down those tributaries into the Mississippi and um, being able to expedite the flow of commerce throughout the world and dealing with emerging issues and coming up with creative solutions to keep that, vital economic lifeline open that was worthwhile to me i don't think there's any other job in the coast guard besides being a ceo of a, your own boat that you're invested with so much authority as the vessel traffic director because you have direct captain on the port authority 
I can shut the waterway down as long as it something happened in the vessel traffic zone. If a boat wreck and sank, I don't have to call the captain. I just shut it down. You know, it better be for a good reason, you know, but uh, I love that job. I love the people, excuse me, that I worked for. I love the, the port partners there, Mac and Morgan City. I mean, just like great people. And remind me, I think you said when we met, Morgan City and somewhere in Seattle are the only two federally regulated um, waterways. I, I forgot what you told me. We actually have a, a, Seattle is actually the biggest vessel traffic zone in the country. And that small Morgan City uh, number of boats that come through our zone is actually the second busiest. And that's not by volume. That's just the amount of boats that come by a day. Um, there's actually 13 vessel traffic zones in the country. Houston has one, New Orleans, Seattle, Los Angeles, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, St. Petersburg. Louisville has one during high water. Uh, Sault Ste. Marie. Um, I know I'm missing a couple other ones. Port Arthur has one. So they're spread out. And uh, the reason that we have vessel traffic areas is to reduce uh and mitigate risk associated with the vessel traffic um a lot of this came from vessel elisions out in the san francisco bay uh, where boats alighted during fog and there was no means of communication and people weren't using their radar and uh, so they decided to implement vessel traffic services to be that extra layer of security to keep maritime commerce flowing where did your career take you after you uh, left Morgan City? So after Morgan City, uh, I wanted to get closer to home, and I followed my old XO, Luis Carmona. He was the commanding officer up at Paducah. I called in a bunch of FONA friends, and uh, I went up to Paducah, and that's where I got introduced into the marine inspections. And uh, as you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of places on the river where you could say that this town's a – a tugboat community or this or that Paducah to me is the Mecca of the inland waterways that from Cairo to Paducah. I mean, you think you see a lot of it down in new Orleans or the Houston ship channel. There's a lot of stuff going there, but the first time you drive over that bridge into Cairo and you look out and you see that fleet, that barge fleeting area over there with three to 400 barges, you're like, wow, this is crazy. And then uh, you go up the upper Mississippi River. I was the waterways chief out there as well. And you go up to Cape G and you'd see these guys pushing 40 barges downbound with rocks on either side and having to flank around every bend and turn and back down to get around turns. And I was like, you could, I'd have a heart attack driving a tugboat like that. So, uh, you know, it's uh, dealing with six packs down in Morgan City that's the biggest thing that would come through or was allowed to come through than being on the big river and seeing guys push 40 um, is crazy. And then you throw in high water and extreme low water and it's just nuts. It's, it's nuts. So I did that job for two years. I got my inspection quals on uh, ITVs and barges. I spent a lot of time over at Charles uh, barge facility maintenance place in Metropolis that was like a once a weeker. Y'all got really good people over there. We love Tyler Simmons. He's great. He runs a tight shop. Um, spent a lot of time over at ACBL in Cairo, uh, TVT, Inland Marine, and Paducah, James Marine. Um, 
really, if, if you're in the tugboat community and you've never been to Paducah or Cairo, um, I would question how much you know about the tugboat community. Because uh, it just happens there. Uh, you look at uh, as far as the inland waterways and the, you know, everybody's coming up on the subchapter M dry dock availability and stuff. And there's no dry docks in St. Louis or Cincinnati or Louisville, maybe a couple in Nashville, but all the dry docks are in Paducah and Cairo. And um, that's where stuff happens. So that was a good job. It was, it was rewarding to see and talk. I'm used to driving boats and, uh, being up in the wheelhouse and then to get down in the engine rooms and inside of barges and respond to casualties and sinkings, uh, getting to see from a different perspective and have a greater appreciation for what it is that, uh, you guys do on the river. And is that, what is that the, uh, step before this current job? Yeah, that, that was spent two years there and I, I got another sweetheart deal. So I'm from, Jeffersonville, Indiana, and um, a job came open in Louisville, and it's really hard to transfer for somewhere for one year, but there's more opportunities for new people in Paducah than there is in Louisville, so I called in every phone a friend. There might have been a couple bottles of bourbon exchanged to, to get this job, but I ended up coming up to Louisville to do uh, waterways, so I in Paducah, I was in charge of waterways, but it's just a small section. You know, you have 80 miles of the Tennessee and Cumberland, 80 miles of the upper, 80 miles of the lower Mississippi, and then 60 miles of the Ohio. And it's a very critical section of river there. I felt like it just never stopped. Always something going on, always somebody running into a bridge or grounding or whatnot. But uh, now I'm in Ohio Valley and I'm in charge of waterways for 13 states the full stretch of the Ohio River, um, large chunks of the Cumberland and Tennessee, um, chunks of the Kanawha River. We go into West Virginia, Pennsylvania. Uh, so it's been eye-opening. You know, I'm, I'm getting to really see, I guess, an old analogy. And it, it came full circle when I was down in Morgan City. I told you I grew up on the Ohio River swimming. And every spring, there's always a high water there in Louisville. And you're like, why can't they just turn on the dams full blast and send this water somewhere else? And you do eight months of high water in Morgan City, and you're praying that they don't turn on the water and stop the water from coming down there. So it's, uh, I have a truly, I've grasped the inland waterways and what uh, the Army Corps and TVA do with water control management on the rivers. And I think uh, a lot of Coast Guard officers they get into waterways specifically they don't have that uh full perspective it's not a job that is gonna you're gonna make a 30-year career out of um it's a job that uh, they send a lot of people that are just buying their time waiting to get out of the coast guard and i fully embrace that and i have a lot of respect for the mariners what the tugboat community does on the water and uh I know when somebody's blowing smoke because I've been there and done that. And uh, so it's been interesting. So four years in the Marine Corps and now you said 16 years in the Coast Guard. You yeah, I'll be retiring June 13th of this year. So Good for you, what comes next? I don't know. Um, I've thought about maybe going to the maritime 
side of the house um, in the Tug community. And I've also thought about just teaching high school history. Um, we're we're, in, uh, we're located outside of Lexington, me and my wife and kids. And uh, we live in our dream house, an old 1895 craftsman style house. It's been totally redone, but it's out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, right now I drive an hour and 45 minutes to work every day into Louisville. And um, I can do anything for a year. But I told my wife, I said, I'm just not the commute after I retire. has got to be 15 minutes or less. No traffic. So we'll see if I can find something around here or if there's anything else in the cards. Good for you. That pretty much wraps up my questions. Anything else interesting comes to mind about your career highlights or anything? Uh, it's been, you meet people when you're a young Marine or a young Coastie that you think the world of and they're your heroes and you look up to them and someday they come up or out of the war work and they're saying, I'm retiring and you're heartbroken because you look up to this person and uh, you ask them, why are you retiring? You say, they often tell you it's, you'll just know when it's your time and you don't lose that or you lose, lose that it's lost on a young mind. And I'm at the end of a 20 year career. And all I can tell you is it's my time. And uh, the amount of technology that's increased over the last 20 years, the knowledge of young kids that are coming in our service uh, just blows me away every day. And uh, I like to pride myself that I outwork a lot of people, but stuff that takes me two hours to do takes some of these young kids 15 minutes. And they're like, let me show you how to do it faster, sir. And uh, you get three or four times in your career at the end where you hear that. And some other small things uh, that I don't want to get into, but it, you just know it's your time. And uh, I'm proud of my service to our country. Um, I'm happy for what it's done for me and my family. Uh, um, it's provided us a, a good, stable life and a good living. I've been able to take care of my family really well. I've learned a lot. I've seen a lot of the world. And um, I wouldn't change anything. But it's time to let somebody else carry the torch and uh, lead our country into the future. Well, I appreciate your time this evening. And I uh, hopefully we can reconnect maybe after you've retired and sorted out what life looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love that, Tim. I wish you and your family all the best, brother. Thanks a lot, sir. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll say we have relatively <laughs> quiet for the moment, but that was a lie. All right. So you finish up OCS and your first, uh, your first 